Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Public access to government records, local law enforcement officers behaving badly, a violent unrest at the St. Louis City Justice Center. This court is now in session. I'm just going to say, I think, and I, I'm going to hold myself responsible too. We, you and I, we need to get into some kind of 12-step program to get off the McCloskeys because it's not healthy. I, I agree. Just, I completely agree. It's not agree. been healthy for our show. <laughs> um, no, I think he's a great pick. We're now, I think, looking a lot more into what is reasonable behavior. When you remove accountability, bad things happen. That's it in a nutshell. What do these things have in common? Well, they all involve our judicial system. That means they're all fodder for our legal roundtable. Today, that roundtable includes Mark Smith. He's a vice chancellor at Washington University and dean for career services. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Nicole Garofsky. She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Garofsky Law. Nicole, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, today we're joined by David Rowland. He's the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. So, Dave, thank you for joining us. It is always a pleasure to join in. So we have a lot to talk about today. I want to start with the big news that came out of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. In the last month, that federal appellate court has twice ruled against local law enforcement officers. The first case involves the SWAT team in St. Charles County. During the 2014 protests in Ferguson, they tear-gassed some journalists from Al Jazeera. The journalists sued. The second case involved St. Louis County police officers. They got a call alleging that a man dropped off an unincorporated St. Louis County near Baldwin had skipped out on a taxi fare. Well, they walked into a nearby home at 3 a.m. and rousted the homeowners. It turns out no one in the household had been in that taxi, and so the members of that home sued. Now, in both cases, the police officers relied on something called qualified immunity in saying that they should not be held responsible for, uh, for this conduct. And Mark, before we dig into the particulars, I think we all need to start with a common frame of reference here. What exactly is qualified immunity. So it's it, it's immunity given to um, public servants when they're working in the course of their, their job and they do acts. Here, they're saying there was not qualified immunity because they were, they were violating a clearly established constitutional right. And that kind of was the standard in both cases. So you have to have this violation of the constitutional right. And then... Um, uh, and then it's got to be clearly established, not something where it might be a constitutional right or it might not. So, uh, so in both these cases, the court spends a lot of time looking at the particular facts of the case. So in the Al Jazeera case, they were removed. You had a video showing that the, these reporters were just kind of standing there. And then the police officers... Um, fired rubber bullets and the the Anderson, the police officer that was sued um, through a tear gas canister. And, um, you know, he was trying to argue that, well, uh, they didn't disperse, they didn't, there were projectiles being thrown. I think there was one other thing, but the court said there's just not enough evidence of that. And he also alleged uh, that he said his supervisor told him to do that. And the court said, even if your supervisor did, that doesn't get you out. And and so uh, in both these cases, yeah, the courts are going to allow these 
to continue, and that it'll be against these officers individually. I thought it was interesting in the case involving tear gassing. Um, the court really made a point of saying there's all this evidence that supports what the journalists are saying, and the only evidence we're seeing on the other side is what your your own recollection of this. Um, Mark, does the court take that into account? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it, it was interesting. The plaintiffs um, said they didn't remember. Um, I, I thought that was in the uh, appellate court, but apparently they had both their own uh, video recording, although at some point they were told to, they, they put their camera down, but there were other uh, cameras filling, filming what happened. So you've, you've got a real robust record that doesn't support what this officer said at all. Nicole, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so qualified immunity comes up a lot in my actual, like, day-to-day practice. So basically, you know, if a police officer does something to you and you think that it's wrong and you go to sue them for damages, like in a civil lawsuit, they're protected from those civil damages. So they, in other words, you can't, you can't sue them for liability um, under this official, or I'm sorry, this qualified immunity standard. But there's an exception. So their conduct has to be, um, it has to not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights that a reasonable person would have known. So what I find really interesting in these cases is that reasonableness standard. So whereas the law has been the same for a really long time about qualified immunity, this reasonableness standard may be changing in our world. And I think that's kind of a fascinating concept. So, um, whereas, you know, maybe police officers would have gotten a pass in the past on um, what is considered reasonable and what is not, we're now, I think, looking a lot more into what is reasonable reasonable behavior. So, these um, these journalists, I think the evidence showed that they had clearly announced themselves as journalists, and then the police officers tear-gassed and fired these these rubber bullets at them anyway. And I think now the court is looking at that and finding that to not be reasonable. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the Eighth Circuit noted in this this tear gassing case that Nicole's talking about that it had never considered a case directly on point uh, with the present facts. So is it fair to say we now have a precedent that you can't tear gas a journalist simply for doing their job as a journalist? I, I love that precedent. Dave, is this something new? Um, that particular holding is, uh, I think new for the eighth circuit. Um, I believe that there have been a couple of similar cases in other circuits. Um, but one of the weird things about qualified immunity, and let me add that qualified immunity is one of the banes of a public interest litigator's existence. Um, but one of the weird things is, is frequently courts will say it, it doesn't even matter if there is this clearly established constitutional right in other jurisdictions, if this jurisdiction has not previously weighed in on it, qualified immunity. Um, and, and a lot of these circuits take it really, really seriously. And, and so, Dave, uh, just, just to break in here, this means that, sure. say, in California, a journalist might have already had this protection, but now we're only getting it in the Midwest? That's correct, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am I'm always thrilled to see any case where a court finds no qualified immunity um, that will always represent a step in the right direction as far as citizens being able to hold uh, their public officials accountable.
It's interesting, in this case, as much as they won this this um, tear gassing on the First Amendment grounds, the court did rule for the St. Charles County team when it came to the Fourth Amendment. They're saying that tear gassing um, is not necessarily a seizure under that. How, how does that tie in here? Does anyone have thoughts on that? No? Okay, this might be too obscure a point of the law, Nicole. I mean, I think that that plays in really interestingly interestingly in the other case that we reviewed about qualified immunity, which is this case of the family in Baldwin that sued because the police officers did this search and seizure of their home for this person who skipped out skipped out on a fair. And um, the police officers went into an open garage and then went into the home and started searching around in the home without really much basis to do so. Their only basis to do so was the fact that they said that the door was unlocked. So um, that really implicates the uh, constitutional concept of search and seizure and unlawful search and seizure. And that's uh, a a well-established constitutional right to be free from search and seizure. And that case really shows why those police officers didn't get qualified immunity in the Eighth Circuit again. And so we have two cases here that I think are really starting to um, shift our understanding of what's reasonable and um, maybe take down a little bit some of this concept of qualified immunity. Dave? So one of the things that I think is really interesting, and this is just me being a law nerd maybe uh, on, on this uh, uh, residence entry case, is um, there was no author attributed to the opinion. There are only three judges on the panel, and two of the judges um, uh, apparently were responsible for the majority opinion. There was a concurring opinion by the third judge, but apparently one of the other two judges did not want to take credit for this opinion. I have my own theories about this. One of the judges on the panel, I joke uh, with other constitutional attorneys about how I don't think he's ever been on the right side of any constitutional case. Uh, he had to have been on the right side of this particular case. Maybe he just didn't want his name on it. He didn't want to ruin his reputation. Uh, well, Dave, that is quite a shot at an unnamed judge. I, I hope this person is listening and, and maybe wants to call in and respond to this this uh, shade being thrown by Dave. But Dave, that is actually a really interesting theory there. Nicole? I mean, when, we were at, when I was at the Attorney General's office doing criminal appeals, we used to try to read into that all the time. And I... You know, I I am talking about whether or not we get it right about what a judge is thinking in their head, but it's an interesting game to play. It is interesting. I got to say, I loved this opinion. It was so vividly written. They must have used the phrase intoxicated fair skipper um, 20 times. And each time, I'll admit, I laughed. Mark? Yeah, I was just going to say, I agree with what's being said. I think these are, these are kind of uh, shifts from this just we're going to give the police the benefit of the doubt no matter what, even when they're pretty outrageous facts. And in, in the second case, I mean, th- this cab driver has this fare who, who just escapes, calls the police, and the police show up like 20 minutes later, and then they're looking. And because there's a, a garage door open, they go into the garage, which the court said, okay, that might make sense. But then they go into the actual home, and this is like 2 or 3 in the morning. Imagine waking up in the middle of the night to find two armed police officers in your home that that that's kind of you know we have this notion of your 
your home is your castle. And, and the court said, that's just going too far and we're not going to allow you to do that. So I think police officers, and I, I understand they have a very difficult job, but I think they're going to have to not get caught up in the moment and sometimes just think and say, yeah, we think that may be in the house, but we just can't do it in this situation. Yeah, that that case was just shocking. And it's, it is Scary. nice to see the, the court uh, rein this in. There is a lot of talk among um, advocates for police reform that qualified immunity needs to just go, that this has no place within our system. Mark, I'm curious if you think that uh, theory is correct. No, I, I think, you know, police officers, like I said, they have a hard job, a very difficult job. And, and we tell them to go out and deal with these situations that are messy and that are and, and make split seconds decisions. And I think um, we need to cut them a little slack. But I think in both of these cases, this was more than a an honest mistake, some confusion. This was, let's throw some tear gas at these Algiers guys because um, we don't like them. And in the other one, it was just, I think things just got away with from them. They were just caught up in the mode. And I understand adrenaline gets going and everything, but you you, you can't do that. Dave, it I got I to gotta turn to you for a contrary thought here. Can you make the case for why you think qualified immunity needs to go? Yes. When you remove accountability, bad things happen. That's it in a nutshell. Um, part of the reason that we continue to see law enforcement officers behaving badly is because there is almost no accountability when they do this. Um, you know, as we pointed out, they can behave incredibly uh, outrageously towards citizens and the citizen has no way to recover a judgment against them because of qualified immunity. That is just a, a really bad way to do society. You are inviting further bad acts when you don't provide citizens an opportunity to hold each other accountable like that. Nicole, I want to give you the last word on this as a, as a former prosecutor. Um, don't these rulings show that there is a way to hold them accountable? It just is kind of a very difficult way. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm sort of, I'm sort of caught. I'm, I'm sort of on the line on this issue. I, a qualified immunity obviously bothers me a lot in my practice sometimes, and, I, and sometimes I think it's applied unfairly. But I, you know, I agree with some of what Mark said about, you know, these people are out there in dangerous situations. We're asking them to put their lives on the line and, then, and make split-second decisions, and they do deserve some protection for that. And then on the other side, I see Dave's point saying, you know, look, you're right. This does shield them from behaving badly. I do think the answer is exactly the law that we have. But what I think has happened, which, you know, says it's a reasonableness standard, which is great. I just think in the past, maybe it was not applied fairly. And I think maybe that's changing. And I think that's a good thing. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That includes Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, and Mark Smith of Washington University. And if you have a legal question about what we're talking about or a comment about what we've been arguing, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about public officials banning members of the public on Twitter. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We'll return to our legal roundtable in just a moment. First, here's a local news update. Only one case of the more contagious coronavirus variant that first emerged in the UK has been confirmed in Missouri. That's according to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. But wastewater testing confirms the mutation is circulating at small levels throughout the entire state. The Regional Business Council and some of its partners will help fund improvements to the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Late last year, a national consulting firm proposed major changes to improve police procedures and reduce violence. The Teneo Risk Report recommends a department-wide crime reduction strategy along with community-oriented policing. And the St. Louis organization Gateway Global is expanding its Geographic Information System, or GIS, training program to more than 100 high schoolers in the St. Louis area. The expansion is part of a partnership with engineering company Lidos. Gateway Global hopes to encourage more students in low-income communities to pursue a career in the GIS and geospatial fields. Join St. Louis Public Radio this afternoon for local and regional news. And throughout the day on our website, that's STL publicradio.org. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Mark Smith, the Dean of Career Services and a Vice Chancellor at Washington University, Nicole Gorofsky, a former prosecutor, now in private practice at Gorofsky Law, and Dave Rowland, Director of Litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. So before the break, we were talking about two cases that came out of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Eighth Circuit was busy last month as far as matters of grave importance in the St. Louis area are concerned. Uh, They also over Overturned a lower court ruling, and they said that politicians can, in fact, block people on Twitter. The justices said that State Representative Cherie Tolson Reich of Hallsville used her Twitter account, quote, in a private capacity, namely as a campaigner for public office. They likened it to a campaign newsletter. This feels to me like a change from our previous understanding of the law here. Mark, is that the case? Yeah, I, I don't think it is. Um, and, and, you know, Folks who follow the law know that, you know, Trump um, tried to kick some people off his Twitter account and was told, no, you can't do that. And so your listeners might say, well, why is it okay for this politician to do it, but not this one? And and I think the the line the court is drawing is they said with Trump Trump's account, it was much more like a government account. He was announcing initiatives and um, it became... Uh, the voice of the government in many ways. And and the um, the one in Missouri, Reich, it, it, um, she said, this is more like my campaign website and it's it's not government stuff. And the A Circuit said, they bought that argument. They said, now if it could switch and, and Trump's clearly started out as a private Twitter account and then it became a, a political one, then it became a governmental one. And it, it, it they noted it could change, but they said, given all the facts here, we're saying it's a, it's more like a campaign website. It's not the government acting. And the reason, you know, the, the government can't limit your speech because of the First Amendment. That would be the government restricting speech. Um, your listeners might say, well, how come Twitter can take President Trump completely off Twitter and 
that's because Twitter's not the government. It's a private entity. So it's a little different. Uh, Dave had some stuff. Yeah, and Dave, I'd, I'd love to hear as, as far as this particular, um, this particular ruling goes, this, this right to block, is this something now that pretty much any politician will be able to use as long as they're sprinkling in some campaign type stuff? Well, that's a possibility. I don't think this case is over. I think that there's a chance that it gets appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't know that the Supreme Court's ready to take this kind of a case yet. And even if they're ready for this kind of a case, I'm not sure that this case in particular is the right vehicle. But it is an issue that I think the court's going to have to address at some point. Part of the reason that this um, decision might be attractive is that there's a split in the panel. Like we talked about earlier, when you go up in front of the Court of Appeals, you have a three-judge panel. And sometimes they all agree, but uh, sometimes one will have a different opinion and they'll publish either a concurring or a dissenting opinion. Where there's a dissent, um, it shows that, hey, maybe this isn't really a settled issue of law. Maybe there needs to be further analysis, further discussion. Maybe the U.S. Supreme Court needs to resolve the dispute. So I'm not sure that this case is over yet. Um, if it is, I'm, I'm a little concerned because I think it is inconsistent with uh, some of the other cases on this topic. And, and Dave, you also said that this might be the wrong case to take up to the Supreme Court. Is that because uh, perhaps Reich was using her Twitter account in a way that, that maybe, you know, it really was OK? She, one could um, be blocked and not yes. miss the business of government. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's part of the reason why it, the court might think that this is the wrong vehicle. They might want just a cleaner set of facts where it is really obvious this politician is using their social media account to hold press conferences, to interact with the public. And if someone says something they don't like, then they get blocked. Um, that would be a much cleaner set of facts for the court to deal with. Um, this one is a closer call, but, but I'll be honest, you know, when I looked at um, the social media accounts involved, there were a lot of trappings of office associated with the accounts. Mm -hmm. um, I found several instances where she was inviting dialogue with constituents. And that's why I think that maybe the court got this one wrong. I think when a politician invites dialogue, not with friends, you know, and people that they know, but with, you know, their constituency at large, that's when I think we have problems if they start blocking people whose ideas or perspectives they don't like. Mark? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, you said that maybe people, government officials could protect their accounts by sprinkling in some political stuff. I think it's, it's more making sure you don't sprinkle in too much governmental stuff into your account. The other thing that I would say, and this is kind of goes outside this case, but this is one of the things that our legal system is not good at, and all of us, is changing technology. So as we hit, get Twitter, the court needs to start thinking, well, how do we think about this? And one way to think about this, which I think the court has, it's, it's like the public debate in an open, like in a public park. And, you know, if I, as a government official, come out there, I cannot tell these people, you cannot speak on your issues. It's different. I mean, Twitter may be like that, but it may not. Maybe it's more like, and I saw one writer saying, it's more like a call-in show on the radio where um, I'm, I'm as your guest and I'm a government official and somebody starts trying to hijack the show, you're the one that cuts them off, not me, the government official. And Twitter ultimately has control here. 
So maybe it's not. I, I, I'm not sure I'm convinced by that argument, but I think it reflects this notion of how, how much the, the courts struggle with changing technology. And often you have like, um, you know, really old judges who are doing it who are maybe not the most technologically uh, adept at it. Boy, I will say I love the call screeners we have here at St. Louis on the Air. I wish I had people just actively working on my Twitter account to shield me from from the vitriol. I'm kidding. I love everyone on Twitter. Um, let's talk about another case. This one is one that was decided by the State Court of Appeals. Um, they heard a case involving the University of Missouri, um, which had banned employees from having guns in their vehicles on campus. They were sued over that policy. They were actually sued by the state of Missouri. They won at trial, and the attorney general appealed. Um, they have just won again at the appellate court level. Uh, Dave Rowland, what's going on with this one? So as listeners may recall, um, whether they agreed with the decision or not, about 60% of Missouri voters uh, chose in 2014 to amend the state constitution to broaden the right to keep and bear arms. And um, this newly expanded amendment bumped up against a University of Missouri policy that totally prohibited the private possession of firearms on campus. Uh, To be clear, This was not a situation where the university was saying, well, we are a special case because we're an educational institution. Their argument was, um, we think that banning private possession of firearms will mean fewer gun crimes, fewer uh, gun-related altercations, uh, fewer gun-related suicides. Therefore, um, we get to ban the private possession of firearms. this is a really dangerous argument to make because we're talking about um, a right that the people of Missouri have decided needs to be treated um, at, with the, the same seriousness that we would treat the freedom of speech or the free exercise of religion or the right of equal protection of the laws. And if the courts are willing to say that a, a government's general interest in avoiding, you know, some particular act that involves the freedom uh, that's an issue is sufficient to overcome the highest level of governmental or judicial scrutiny. It it means that all of our liberties are in jeopardy because they're not going to stop with applying this this kind of lower standard of review uh, for this particular right. It's gradually going to bleed over into the way that they analyze any constitutional issue. Um, so this is an issue I've been really, really hot about for about for about six years now, um, because I, I see Missouri's courts uh, steadily degrading the very idea of constitutional protection of rights. And, and this case is just one example of that. And yet, do we really want guns on, on campus? Uh, Nicole, I, I imagine you might have a, a counter view on some of this. Well, actually, I just really wanted to start by explaining the forest before the trees a little bit here. So I just want to explain that Missouri has a criminal statute that says, you know, it's a, it's the unlawful use of a weapon statute that explains it's a criminal, um, it's a criminal offense to use a weapon unlawfully. It has an exception to that offense, which basically says notwithstanding any provision of this criminal law, um, state employees can carry a firearm in their vehicle on state property. 
So basically, it's an exception to the unlawful use of a weapon crime. So then basically what the University of Missouri did was they created their own rule saying, no, you can't carry firearms on our property, even if you are a state employee, no matter who you are. So basically, the real issue in this case was when you have a rule that opposes a statute and they're in conflict, what happens? So here the court decided if there's a conflict and it's the university rule versus a statute, the statute prevails. So basically, in a very basic explanation of law, that's the law. Statute prevails over a University of Missouri rule. So, I, you know, the, the court was pretty clear on that part. Then there's the issue that Dave is getting into, which is whether or not you have a constitutional right to bear arms on university property. And then that's a lot more complicated and that's a lot more um, involved. And look, I do... I do believe that universities should have the right to say you can't bear arms on our campus. I think that should be a public safety issue. I think um, that's a really obviously important public safety issue, in my opinion and in my experience, and based on empirical evidence. But I have to agree with the point of law. When there is a statute against a university rule, the statute prevails. Mark? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's exactly right. They said this this rule is struck down because it conflicts with the statute, not because it conflicts with the Second Amendment. And if you go back to the Heller case, which was the, you know, the original case where the Supreme Court said the Second Amendment um, is a is an individual right, not just for militias. You know, Scalia, who wrote that opinion, said it's not a uh, completely unlimited, subject to restrictions, just like the First Amendment is. You know, I can't defame some person. That that's not free speech. And so, and and he talked about, as I recall, you know, one of the thing was restrictions about guns near schools. And and so, now this Second Amendment uh, jurisprudence is still developing. And you know, we had the uh, the McDonald case, which extended it to states, but it's still being defined by the circuit courts. And I mean, I, I think if we didn't have the state statute, it might be constitutional, but it's not clear to me. Dave? So I, this is a situation where I really believe the devil is in the details, and I encourage both of you to go back and reread the opinion. Um, if the university's argument had been kind of like what we saw Scalia talk about in the Heller case and in the McDonald case about there being certain sensitive areas where the government has a heightened interest in uh, excluding firearms, I would say that there's a much stronger legal argument for the outcome that we got. But what concerns me is that is not the argument that the university was making. They did not argue that they were special because they were an educational institution. They were arguing that the government generally, any sort of government entity, whether it be a school, whether it be a town, whether it be a county, they're arguing has this government interest in preventing gun-related mishaps. And that is where I think the real danger lies, because the reasoning that got adopted in this case is what's going to get picked up in other constitutional cases. So, so devil's in the details. Go back and review that case. And, and I think you might see the point that I'm making. Nicole? I will just somewhat disagree. Sometimes uh, courts put really important issues in footnotes. And um, sometimes I sometimes 
in my own writing, relegate really important issues to footnotes when I don't want to flesh them out fully. But there is a footnote in this case um, which does say that's an issue for uh, – that's another issue, and it does say that, you know, we can debate whether there's a constitutional right to to bear arms on university property. Um, So the court did kind of say that the the plaintiff brought that up, that they're relegating it to uh, another day, sort of. So – um, it was addressed, but not addressed. You know, the fact we have a dispute on our legal roundtable, I think we need to go to a caller. Maybe we'll let them sort this out. Uh, Tom is calling from St. Louis. Tom, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a gun owner, and uh, I care about the Bill of Rights quite a bit. Um, but when something is so hotly politicized as the gun debate, you get a lot of arguments because uh, they're politically popular, not because they're good arguments. And the slippery slope argument is just not a valid argument with gun rights. We've had the First and Second Amendment equal amounts of time, and we have reasonable limits on First Amendment speech. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And this has not led to a gradual diminishment of First Amendment rights over two centuries. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had a Rush Limbaugh or even a Donald Trump. So you feel like the Second uh, Amendment can take it, huh? Yes, yes. It's ridiculous to say that any limits are going to lead to total banning. It's just silly. Well, Tom, thank you for that call um, and helping us uh, mediate this dispute with our panel. Um, We're going to have to go to take a quick break. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, and Mark Smith of Washington University. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable, and we were just discussing the Second Amendment and um, all sorts of cases involving it with uh, Mark Smith of Washington University and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri. Much as our panel, I think, would like to linger on a a Second Amendment discussion, I am going to have to move us on because there is um, some interesting things going on in this state involving the Sunshine Law. Um, Earlier this month, the Missouri Supreme Court heard a case involving this law. This is Elad Gross versus Governor Parson. It involves a number of matters. The biggest is whether bodies such as the governor's office can charge costs for searching for and researching public records. Now, as somebody who's frequently been stuck with these bills, I thought it was settled law they could do this. Um, Was I wrong about that, Dave Rowland? Well, that's what we're going to find out from the Missouri Supreme Court. (laughs) Um, So this case um, is, is actually very important because, as you noted, uh, one of the tactics that government entities usually use to avoid transparency is when a citizen asks for records, um, the entity will bill them. They'll say, well, you first you've got to give us $5,000 before we produce the records for you. This is something Tony Messenger ran into at the Post-Dispatch a couple of years ago. He asked for a set of records that should have already been set aside uh, should not have been difficult to locate or, or prepare from the St. Louis County Police Department. And they said, well, we'll give it to you, but first you've got to give us $5,000. Um, so it's a, it's a huge impediment to 
government transparency to face these kinds of bills. Uh, it basically makes your access to public records dependent on your ability to pay. So Elad Gross argued that uh, the Sunshine Law, while it does authorize certain fees associated with preparing records that have been requested, it does not authorize the government to charge citizens for attorney research time. Uh, as everyone knows, attorneys can be fairly expensive. And if the government says, well, hey, we want to have our attorneys look over these records and make sure that uh, there's nothing we want to redact. And oh, by the way, you've got to pay us for the time this attorney spends reviewing these records. It gets very pricey very quickly. At the Court of Appeals, the the court ruled that when it comes to electronic records, records that are electronically stored in an electronic format, uh, in fact, the Sunshine Law does not authorize charging for attorney research time. Mm -hmm. um, and it split the baby there. It said that if you're asking for hard copies, paper copies, perhaps these charges would be per uh, permitted, uh, but, but not if you're asking for electronic copies. And the Missouri Supreme Court said, well, we want to take another look at this. They, um, someone on the court was not, uh, was not certain that the Court of Appeals got it right. And that's why this was argued, I believe, last month in, uh, mm -hmm. in the Missouri Supreme Court. And we are still waiting for the decision on this one. Obviously, it was just argued. Uh, Nicole? I just want to explain practically that, you know, although this is an issue that affects, affects obviously, journalists, who, you know, want to get these records, that it affects a lot more than just journalists. And I think that people should know that. So in my day-to-day -day practice, it affects my clients. I represent crime victims in civil cases. And we have to often get police reports. We have to get all kinds of um, complaints that my clients have made to, you know, governmental agencies. And this is often used as a tactic to try to prevent my clients from, you know, getting their own records, their crime victim records. And this comes up a lot. And a lot of times, you know, they need an attorney, unfortunately, to go in and argue this for them. And when the costs are exorbitant, it's just not right. It, it's just really a huge problem. And so, um, you know, I hope this, this case really gets makes some headway because when you're charging for the government's attorney fees, that's excessive, and it, it's getting ridiculous. Mark Smith? I was just going to say, I, I agree completely with this. The, the, these laws are meant to give citizens access to records, and the state is now trying to say, you know, they're nickel and diming, and then to say, and you're going to pay for our attorney to go through so we can do a CYA move and just make sure nothing bad's here. I mean, so what they have to then pay for uh, a public relations consultant so they can spin the bad news that's coming out. I mean, that, 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 that is, those are services that help the state not, and they're not necessary and they're not, um, they're not needed by this person. So I, I just think, I hope the Missouri Supreme Court really spanks the, the state hard on this one. You know, I agree with all three of you on this so strongly. And yet I find myself, my, my brain is just lingering over this thing that Dave mentioned, where they came up with a different standard for electronic versus paper records. Is this just a case of, of what Mark was talking about, where these are judges, maybe on this appellate court level, who, who don't understand technology? It seems like a weird distinction here. Mark, do you have any concerns about that? Or Dave, sorry, I, I see you're going to jump in there. Uh, no, actually, I 
I think that there was a valid basis for the Court of Appeals making that distinction. The, um, the, the Sunshine Law itself deals with paper records differently than it deals with electronically stored records. Hmm. And, and the language is different. And that the, I thought the Court of Appeals actually did a really nice job of examining that difference and, and thinking through the consequences of that difference. And I think that they reached the, the correct conclusion. So, um, I mean, ideally, I'd, I'd love to see the Missouri Supreme Court produce an opinion that is very similar to what the Court of Appeals came up with, because not only do I think that it's a pro-transparency uh, opinion, I think more importantly, I think it, it's true to the language of the statute. And that's the most important thing for judges. Hmm. Well, it's nice to see our panel can come together on this one after we had a difference on the Second Amendment. Um, Dave, I understand there is some more um, sunshine law in the news. There were actually a number of cases. But I'd love for you to get us up to speed on one that involves attorney Mark Pedroli. He's been a guest on this show and is is super into government transparency. Uh, What happened to his case here? Uh, so Mark Pedroli had a really interesting case dealing with the governor's office over in Cole County, and um, it kind of got whittled down to this question of, is a phone number a, uh, a an exempt record? Is, is a phone number exempt from disclosure under the Sunshine Law? And Judge John Beatum, who is a, a venerable judge in Cole County, got the case, and Initially, he issued an opinion that I thought was spot on. He pointed out the government's theory of the case was absolutely ludicrous. Like the the statute that they tried to cite to justify withholding the phone numbers was not applicable. Uh, And he kind of took them to task on that. But then two weeks later, Judge Beatum announced that he was withdrawing his opinion. And then just in the last week, he issued a new opinion where he said, okay, the theory that the government argued was wrong, but they could have argued this other theory and they would have won if they had argued that theory. So I'm going to rule in favor of the government. Now, I'm really concerned about this. I, and, and I like Judge Beatum. I think he's a good judge. But this is a circumstance where I I fear that he stepped over a line that judges are not supposed to step over. Judges are supposed to be impartial. You're supposed to assess the law based on the arguments that the parties have put in front of you. You're not supposed to become an advocate for one party or or another. And when a judge reaches into the law and says, well, even though this party didn't make this argument, I'm going to make this argument for them so they will win, that's something that that I think ought to make people feel a little uncomfortable. Well, that so, makes me wildly uncomfortable. And and then on top yeah. of that, the cherry on top of this is withdrawing an opinion that had already been issued. I can't remember ever hearing about that happening. And Nicole, am I right to be flabbergasted? It does happen, Dave? It, it does happen. I, I'm not going to say it's common, but, but it does happen. And frankly, we want it to because judges are not perfect. Sometimes they will get a case wrong, and and we would prefer for the judge to correct their error and do so quickly than we would for them just to be stuck with whatever their first impression was. So so although I I wish the judge had not changed his opinion in this case, um, I actually think it's a good thing that judges are able to kind of second-guess themselves if they think they got something wrong. Nicole? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I remember being a young attorney with a 
brand new judge out in Boone County and um, giving short shrift sort of to an argument. And then the judge ruled against me and I went back and, and put more law out there and asked the judge to reconsider because I had given it short shrift. And the judge changed his order because he was learning, I was learning. And, you know, that was a good experience, I think, for both of us. But so judges, I think it's a good thing that they can, you know, think about things, change their minds. But, you know, to change their minds, we call that, what we call that is sua sponte. When a party hasn't raised a claim, and so the judge does it on their own for that party, that's called a court sua sponte raising an issue that hasn't been raised by those parties. And that's very concerning. And so judges, is it, is it settled among lawyers that judges should not be engaging in these sua sponte uh, 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 decisions? Or is this, am I wading into I'm... a huge controversy here with five minutes left on our show, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. uh, so, so there are certain areas of the law where judges are actually encouraged uh, to do this, like jurisdictional issues. Um, we don't want courts deciding matters that are not properly before them. And so we tend to encourage judges to make sua sponte decisions in that regard. Uh, I can speak as a constitutional attorney. Uh, when you get into a number of constitutional issues, the, the current state of the law is that the judge has to look for ways to let the government win, which is really, really tough on folks like me. But, um, but that is, in fact, how, how the law functions. Um, on a lot of these constitutional issues, even though I think that that's wildly inappropriate. So, so is that simply what Judge Batum was doing here, is, is following that? Well, no, because this was not a constitutional mm-hmm. case. I, I actually disagree. If, if this had been a, a constitutional case of a certain type, I would at least be able to say that Judge Batum was following you know, what precedent has suggested judges should do. The Sunshine Law is not that case. The mm-hmm. Sunshine Law is supposed to stack the deck in favor of citizens, in favor of transparency. Judges should be looking for ways to promote transparency, not to uh, throttle it. And and I'm afraid that that uh, Judge Beatum went the wrong direction on this one. Mark, would him flip-flopping on this um, and doing the sua sponte, would this help at all on appeal? Or is that not something that, that could help uh, Mark Pedroli trying to overturn this? I'm sure he could... Um try and use it in his appeal. I'm not sure it's a grounds for an appeal, but to, you know, when he's arguing about this, it sounds like I haven't read this case. It sounds like it's a interpretation of the statute and say it's, you know, his first opinion said it wasn't because of this reason. And we think that's the right reason that the the court, the way the court should approach it. I'm, I'm a little less concerned about judges um, bringing in ideas of their own because I mean, sometimes, you know, our system is you have two lawyers and sometimes one lawyer is not all that good. And and so, you know, you got to sometimes get issues in. So in our final two minutes, there's one other case I want to mention. Um, back in July, we first discussed a pair of St. Louis personal injury attorneys on this program. I am speaking, of course, of Mark and Patricia McCloskey. We have continued to talk about them every month since then. Every month there is something new with these guys. They have sued a photographer who captured them brandishing their guns um, at protesters walking by their house. And, you know, there have been all these machinations related to the criminal charges they face for that. And then Mark McCloskey 
Kalinowski has now filed a lawsuit on behalf of a Catholic school student who felt she was being indoctrinated by critical race theory. They just keep getting on the program. And I have to keep the streak alive in that after Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner was kicked off of being allowed to prosecute this case, a special prosecutor has now been appointed. And this is Richard Callahan. That's a name that should be familiar to many people. He used to be the U.S. attorney here um, in St. Louis. I understand he was also um, at one point a panelist on this very roundtable. And so my question is, Mark, is this a good pick to be handling this very high profile prosecution in the city of St. Louis? And, and before I say that, I'm just going to say, I think, and I, I'm going to hold myself responsible too. We, you and I, we need to get into some kind of 12-step program to get off the McCloskeys because it's not healthy. I, I agree. It's just, I completely It's not agree. been healthy for our show. <laughs> um, no, I think he's a great pick. I mean, he's very well respected. Um, you know, he said when he was um, agreed to it that he thought this would be a nice way to kind of end his public service career. And, um, you know, he had a he was a judge in Cole County. Cole County gets a lot of big cases, very well respected. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's great. I think he's a great choice. And and like I said, we'll sign up for that 12-step program later. So here's the question for our panel in, in the final minute here. The big question is whether this prosecution is even going to go forward or whether a prosecutor who's not Kim Gardner would say, you know what, this one is just not worth my time. Does anyone want to hazard a guess on what Richard Callahan will do in this case? No. It just remains to be seen. People never want to predict something if they're, if they're on the record with it. Mark, do you have any guesses? Oh, I would, if I had a guess and we were placing bets, I would say um, they, he will allow them to plead to some kind of like misdemeanor thing where everyone kind of saves face and withdraws from it. Well, and when that happens, that means we're going to have to talk about this now on the show, now that Mark has made <laughs> See, this prediction. See, this I, I tricked you. Help. I trapped you right into that. <laughs> and we do all need help. Um, too much McCloskey's. Mark Smith of Washington University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah. And Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, thank you. Thank you. And Dave Rowland of the Missouri Freedom Center, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpublicradio.org. And be sure never to miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. You can find St. Louis on the Air on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill, Lara Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.